there you go. I thought everything was going well until I looked up. And uh, we were on the same page, but not really. Zechariah chapter 13. Uh, actually, Zechariah chapter 11. All, all throughout the Old Testament, the imagery of the shepherd and the sheep is given. Abraham was a shepherd. We're studying Abraham in the life on, um, on Sunday evenings. Jacob, his son, Isaac, obviously Isaac, and then Jacob were shepherds. Moses was a shepherd for 40 years. And then he was seen as leading a flock of sheep, of Israelites, through the wilderness for 40 years. Boaz, in the story of Ruth, um, obviously had fields, but he was also a shepherd in Bethlehem. And then David, uh, the king after God's own heart, uh, was a shepherd. And so uh, shepherds are a good imagery for the Israelites, and it's picked up. The major and minor prophets pick up this imagery with God dealing with his own people as the shepherd would deal with his sheep. But also in prophecy, the sheep and shepherd is used as a prophetic um, example for the future. And Jesus picks up on that as well when he talks about the Pharisees, but also about the future Israel. And he even weeps over Israel as sheep who are scattered, who have no shepherd. And so shepherd imagery is used in prophecy, and we see that in Zechariah. We've seen it before, we'll see it in this chapter, and we'll also see it again in chapter 13. Chapter 11 is about two shepherds. Two shepherds. There's a good shepherd, and then there's a bad shepherd. Look at verse 4 of chapter 11. And the Lord said, unto, uh, and this, thus saith the Lord, my God, feed the flock of slaughter. Um, a good shepherd is going to be feeding his sheep. And Zechariah is told to feed the flock who is ripe for suffering, for slaughter. The word slaughter here can also be translated the word butchered. Verse 7, look down at verse 7. So he said, and I will feed the flock for slaughter, even you, O poor of the flock. And I took unto me two staves, the one I called beauty and the other I called bands, and I fed the flock. So there, Zechariah is picturing the shepherd. And then there is a bad shepherd in verse 15. Look down at verse 15 of this chapter. And the Lord said unto me, Take up unto thee yet the instrument of a foolish shepherd. The word foolish can also be used as a synonym in the Old Testament for wicked. Proverbs would talk about the foolish person, but he also talks about the wicked person, sometimes using this word interchangeably. And so here we are seeing in verse 15, a wicked shepherd, a foolish shepherd. And then in verse 16, it says here, and lo, I will rise up a shepherd in the land which shall not visit those that be cut off. And so here, here's what he's going to do in verse 16. And then look down at verse 17. Woe to the idle shepherd that leaves the flock. And so verse 15, 16, and 17 are going to picture a, a wicked shepherd. I remember a video that was played in, I think, two of my seminary classes on pastoral leadership. And uh, one of the professors um, uh, played this video for us and said that uh, sheep and shepherds' relationships can sometimes be complicated. And the sheep can get aggravated with the shepherd, and the shepherd can get aggravated with the sheep. Some sheep don't like to follow, 
and some shepherds don't lead well, and that can cause problems. I thought maybe I'd just show you the video. It's just muted. It's just going to show, but at least it's just show an interesting perspective about the life of being a shepherd. All right, whoever said that being a shepherd was easy, all right, that, that guy needed some little help. And uh, so I thought that was um, you know, kind of a violent video, but uh, a, a, very, a very real video of the life of a shepherd. Sometimes you just got that stubborn sheep that's there. Remember in Zechariah, a group of Jews, when we come into the context of, of what we've talked about in Zechariah, Zechariah is speaking to a group of Jews who have returned from Persia and Babylon. They've come back from captivity. They were allowed to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. They were allowed to rebuild the temple. This is recorded in the book of Ezra. I'm reading through in my devotions the book of Ezra, and I've come across uh, this, this picture again in that book. Zerubbabel is their leader. He's their governor. He's the one who is actually in line for the throne He's on the Davidic line. He's mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. Joshua, the son of Josedek, is the high priest who is in charge of helping with the articles of the temple and getting the worship started and the sacrifices back started. Haggai and Zechariah are the prophets that God has sent during this time in this building project uh, to, to the Israelites, and they share sitting side by side in the minor prophets to encourage the people in their work. They started the project and they had gotten discouraged. There had been some opposition and the project after two years had stopped. God called Haggai to come onto the scene and in three chapters he preached a very good revival message to rally the, uh, the group of Jews back up to building. Zechariah comes on the scene as a young man and he preaches as well. And under both of their preaching and under both of their ministries of prophecy, the Jewish people are rallied back to continue the project and then the temple and the city of Jerusalem is rebuilt. Early in Zechariah's ministry as a young man, he was given eight visions, chapter 1 through chapter 6. We saw those visions. Then he was given two sermons in chapter 7 and chapter 8. And now Zechariah is an older man, sometime around 490 B.C. It's been a while. It's been several decades now since he's received the first portion of his book. And he's given two burdens to share with the people of Jerusalem. These two burdens are filled with judgment and blessing concerning the future. Chapter 9, we saw a few weeks ago, is the first burden. Chapter 9, 10, and 11. Chapter 9 was the burden of the future judgment of the nations who, would who had mistreated Israel. This was judgment by the hand of a military conqueror who would come, and we know his name is Alexander the Great. And he would march through Palestine, and he would judge those nations, the Philistines and the Assyrians, and eventually come to Jerusalem, but not destroy Jerusalem. That was also pictured in that chapter of another conqueror, a king who would come riding upon a donkey, the colt of a donkey, meek and lowly in spirit. There's another conqueror, there's another king who is coming, and he will bring peace. 
before he will come as a lamb, but he will also come in fulfillment of, of a lion of the tribe of Judah and bring peace to this earth. Chapter 10 was the continuation of this burden, the burden of a future blessing of the restoration of Jerusalem. God is going to regather his people back to the land and rebuild the city of Jerusalem and there he will dwell with them and from all over the world, from the four corners of the world, he will bring back his people and they will worship him in that place and there will be no war and no suffering and there will be peace and safety and joy. That was chapter 10. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And then in chapter 11, he will conclude this burden uh, he, we started it and somewhat finished it last time that we were together, but um, I told you that, I had, I had, that chapter 11, what I read, was one of the hardest chapters in the Old Testament. Particularly, verse 8 alone, there are 40 different interpretations to verse 8. One commentary, in fact, two commentaries that I, that I read said that verse 8 is the hardest verse in the Bible to in, interpret. And we still, to some extent, don't know what it really um, is, is referring to. We can make assumptions, but we can't be dogmatic. And the last time that I was thinking, I went through this, uh, this chapter in about 10 minutes. And uh, because I, I spent so much time in chapter 10, I anticipated to do both chapters together and move on to the last section of the book of Zechariah. And then after my study, I felt like, okay, this is the hardest chapter in the, in the, in the Bible by some people's estimation. And verse 8 has 40 different, different interpretations to it. And I took 10 minutes to that. Does that it doesn't seem fair to me. All right? And so I, I feel like... Um, and maybe we should spend a little bit more time on it and return to it just for a second. I want you to understand the main point of chapter 11. Before the blessing of the kingdom, before the peace that the Messiah will bring, before he comes and bring, restores his people and brings them back to Jerusalem and sets up his kingdom, before the Messiah is, is going to bring the blessings that are going to come with the millennial kingdom where people will lay down the lion with the lamb and will run in the street with happiness and joy as has been read previously in the chapters before. Before Israel is regathered and the nations of the world are punished, there must come a time of suffering. And that suffering will accompany rejection. And chapter 11 is about rebellion, rejection, and deception. There is no doubt that this chapter is talking about a future time in Israel's history. The, issues, the issue is when. The first three verses we talked just a little bit about, there are potential three different viewpoints about this. The first three verses is clearly talking about the destruction of the Holy Land. The answer is when. When does that destruction take place? And I told you that I believe that this destruction, this destruction that's taking place in the first three verses takes place in 70 A.D. after Jesus. The Holy Land was plundered. The city of Jerusalem was burned to the ground along with the temple. Josephus records that 1,100,000 Jews were killed during a four-year period. Josephus records for us that over 100,000 Jews were thrown over the temple wall to their deaths. Can you imagine how long that took? 
the Roman soldiers would take those Jews who had, who had uh, held themselves up into the temple and into the walls of that city of Jerusalem and in 70 AD under Tyrus, uh, Titus when he came in and the, those Roman soldiers took those Jewish people and threw them over the wall. In fact, you can go today, we will go in our trip to Jerusalem in, uh, next year, you can go to the spot. The stones that the, Jew, that the Romans pushed over the wall are still there in a rumble and you can walk around those stones. And it is on those stones that 100,000 Jews were taken from the Temple Mount and thrown off the wall. Josephus records that in the stronghold of Jerusalem itself, over, over 100,000 were taken as slaves. The last remaining stronghold of that war took place in the Judean desert three years later in 73 AD on a hilltop fortress called Masada. If you know the story of Masada, there was the last remaining group of rebel Jews who ended up hiding up on top of that mountain peak and the Romans surrounded and besieged and eventually built a siege ramp and made their way all the way up to the top. But when they got up to the top, all of the Jews had committed suicide or basically it was mass murder and only one committed suicide because they would rather die than be taken into the hands of the Romans. Zechariah is prophesying of that slaughter that would come over 400 years from the date of this book. He writes about it in the first three verses in a poetic fashion. He uses it in, in, the, uh, in the context of the trees and the cedars and the oaks and the lions and the beasts that are going to be plundered. So he's picturing it almost like in an allegory as the trees are being destroyed and the city is being burned and the wood is being destroyed. And so he does it in a poetic fashion, but uh, he's seeing the, the destruction. Jeremiah, um, Ezekiel, Hosea also prophesied of the destruction of Jerusalem as well, but they prophesied it of it in their day under, uh, um, under Nebuchadnezzar. And so what happened is Zechariah in these first three verses are, are, is, is giving the prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem and the shepherds are going to howl. In other words, the leadership is going to howl. You see that in verse 3 in, uh, in chapter 11 as these shepherds are going to cry out because of the spoil of the land. And then what's going to happen from verse 4 down to verse 17 is Zechariah is going to be an object lesson. Oftentimes, the prophets would be asked to act out something, and the acting out of something would also be a way that people would remember the object lesson in the future. It would be a prophecy acted out. You remember Ezekiel does this in Ezekiel chapter 4. God came to Ezekiel and he told him, he said, I want you to make a little fort on the ground. And I want you to fortify it with, with a wall around. And I want you to build towers. And then I want you to build a siege ramp. So here you got Zechariah or Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 4 sitting on his hands and knees. And he's playing with a model. And he's told to take a, a siege ramp. And he's told to and move it around. And then God is so, so here he's got this object lesson. He's playing with toys. I'm sure the people came around and said, who, Ezekiel, he's lost his mind. You see what, he's doing all this weird stuff. Now he's playing with kids' toys again. But God tells him to do that because what he's doing is he's acting out the future destruction of the city of Jerusalem under Nebuchadnezzar. 
and what God is going to do. And he's using it as an object lesson. Remember, Zechariah also was told to go outside in the previous chapter and to act out a prophecy there. He was to take up a love offering from those who were traveling by. He was to melt down the, uh, the silver and gold. He was to make a double-decker crown. And then he was going to go into this particular man's house. And there he was to crown Joshua the high priest king. Then he was to take that crown off of Joshua's head and he was going to go hang it in the window seal in the temple. And for them, it was going to be a memorial. That whole thing was an act out. It was, a, it was a play that he was acting out to teach a biblical truth. Well, that is what's going to happen in this chapter. Zechariah is going to be told, I want you to go out and I want you to find a shepherd's garment. I want you to find a staff in your hand and a rod in your other hand. And I want you to pretend to be a good shepherd. And I want you to feed my flock. He said, okay. And he's going to do that. So he did that. He says, God told me to go out and do this. Then in verse 15, 16, and 17, he's told to take off. Basically, I'm just, I'm using a little bit of my own imagination here. He's told to take off the garment from the old shepherd, the good shepherd, and put on the garment of a wicked shepherd. And then to go into the flock and act out a wicked shepherd. And both of these acting scenes that Zechariah is going to do in chapter 11 is intended to give prophecy. He's telling about something in the future, and that's what we want to see in this role play of Zechariah playing these two shepherds, one a good one and one a bad one. So I want to point out a few things that I failed to point out last time that I was with you. The, the, the first section here from verse 4 down to verse 14 is the, is the play acting of the good shepherd. And what's going to happen is that good shepherd is going to be rejected. He's eventually going to be thrown 30 pieces of silver off to the ground and say, get out of here. We don't want you. So that, that's how the first scene ends. The second scene is verse 15, 16, and 17 where Zechariah plays the role of a wicked shepherd and he is accepted. The, 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 the flock says, come on in. We want all that you have. And hook, line, and sinker, they accept the wicked shepherd. And he in turn eats them. And then as a result of eating them and mistreating them, God will punish that evil shepherd. Now let's see what a little bit of what's going on. I don't want to take too much of a time with this, but I do want you to see what has happened. In verse 7, look down at verse 7. He is told to feed the flock. He is, uh, we talked a little bit about verse 5 and 6. But he also in his hands, he says, I took, look in the middle of the verse, and I took unto me two staves. One I called beauty, and the other I called bands, and I fed the flock. Now, later in the story, he's going to take these two staffs, the first one, beauty, and he is going to break it over his knee. He's going to break it in half. And, and that's going to be a symbol. Then he's going to take the other, um, uh, uh, the other band, and he is also going to break that band as well in verse 14. He, breaks the, he takes the other band and he breaks it, or the... Uh, the, the other staff, and he breaks it. Now, it's interesting, a shepherd would often carry two staffs. We see the nice, beautiful picture of the you know, sheep in the one hand, and he's got the, 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 uh, the staff with the crook on the, on the end, the hook on the end, and there it is, and that makes for a good painting. However, a shepherd would often carry two staffs. Two staffs. Remember Psalm 23 and verse 4. Thy rod and thy what? 
they comfort me. Two different ones. Okay, the rod that was used, one was a straight rod. It was a strong like a club. It was used to beat away wild beasts and snakes and other threats that would come to the sheep. That was the rod. There was another staff that was used, and it was longer, but it had a hook at the end. It was used to pull the sheep from danger and to carry them as an extension of his hand. It was more of a tender. And yes, maybe one shepherd could use the same, uh, the same tool for both instances. But oftentimes it was pictured as two different instruments. One, an instrument of protection against wild beasts, like a club. And the other, a, a, an instrument of correction and encouragement and love as the shepherd would often have to move the sheep out of the way or reach them down if they've fallen into the thicket or something like that to be used. And that's why in Psalm 23, where he uses this imagery of the rod and the staff, there's two aspects to what the shepherd does. He both protects from evil and from, from harm and he corrects in discipline his sheep that go astray. Now, interesting, these two staffs are given names that Zechariah is holding in his hand. The first staff is named in the Hebrew, Naomah. Naomah is the Hebrew word for the first staff. It's translated in the King James as the word beauty. But it means pleasant, lovely, gracious, or favored. If you have another translation, the word favor may be the translation of that word. There is a lady in the Old Testament with this name. Do you know what her name is? Okay. The male version is Maoma, but the female version is Naomi. Okay. And there's a play on her name in the book of Ruth. No longer call me pleasant, call me Mara, bitter. Okay. There's also a man's name in the Old Testament with this name, meaning pleasant or gracious. His name is Naaman. There's a story about him in the Old Testament. This staff was used to show love and grace. This is a representation of how the good shepherd is going to love in his graciousness and favor and compassion. He loves the sheep. He shows them favor. And this is how God has been towards them. But it is how the good shepherd one day that will come, the son of David who will come to this earth and feed his people and take care of them. And as he took those five barley loaves and those two small fishes and he broke them up and he gathered them as they were gathered onto the green fields off to the side and he became to them the good shepherd and showed them love and compassion and care. That was Jesus Jesus was the man of compassion and favor and care and love. Pleasant and lovely and beautiful is he, the good shepherd. The other word that is used, habhel, is the word to tie or to bind together. It actually, the literal meaning of the word is to twist cords, to take lots of different strands. We would think of it as ropes that are all different strands of rope. And then you wind them together to make a very tight, strong cord. So the translation of this word here is the word binds or bands. That's the name. But it's also, in, if you, you can translate this word, union or unity, to bring together. 
It was, it, this is what the rod would do. The rod, like the hook, when a sheep would go astray, he would go out and he would hook him and he would bring them back in the fold. That one sheep that would go astray, the shepherd went out to correct him, to discipline, and bring him back into the unity and the union of the fold because he had rebelled. And that was what the Lord Jesus Christ was as the good shepherd. He was the one to, who came to heal the brokenhearted to mend the wounded spirits, and to heal, to bring into unity and union and correct the broken relationship that had happened between God and man. That was Jesus Christ. And in verse 9 through 10, we have something that happens here. 9 through 10, he, uh, God is going to show how He is going to be rejected. And because He's going to be rejected, He will reject them too. He said in verse 9, I will not feed you. I will let it, let it die. And cut off. And He said in verse 10, And I took my staff, the one that was called beauty and pleasant and loveliness, and I cut it sunder that I might break my covenant which I had made with all people. Now this is not talking about the covenant of Abraham or Moses or, or David. This is calling, uh, talking about a covenant that God made with all the nations of this world to be careful of, of messing with Israel. Because if you mess with Israel, you mess with the, the apple of God's eye. That was already mentioned earlier in this book. And here, they will take that staff and they will break that staff. And they will reject that shepherd. They will reject that love. And in the process of rejecting that love, then God will say, okay, then I will reject you. And I will break that bond of unity and I will break that bond of, of beauty and pleasant and I will break the covenant that I have with all the nations. Somehow God's providential hand is over the nations of this world to not wipe out His people. And there have been times that God's hand has been a blessing on God's people and there are times that God's hand has been taken away and the nations of the world have come in and consumed the nation of Israel. We've seen that happen in the past. The Lord in verse 11 says that it was broken in that day and so the poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was the word of the Lord. They will know that it will be the word of the Lord when that happens. Now, I want you to understand in verse 12 and 13. He said, I said unto them, if you think good, give me my price. And he says here, if not, forbear. So they weighed for me my price, 30 pieces of silver. So Zechariah, playing this role of the shepherd, is now asked to go to the people and ask for his wages. Pay your preacher. That's what, that's what Zechariah is asking the people to do. If it seems right to you, that's kind of the idea of, hey, it's right to do, pay your preacher. They paid him, but when they paid him, they paid him 30 pieces of silver. This was the price of a slave. Leviticus states that the price of a slave was 30 pieces of silver, but the passage in Leviticus actually says the price of a slave that's been gored by an ox. So in other words, you got the price of a slave, then you have a price of a wounded slave. I don't know about being gored with an ox, but I can imagine it probably hurt. He's probably not going to be able to do a whole lot of what he used to do. It's kind of bottom of the barrel slave, if you want to see that. 
So Zechariah's value to the people as they weigh out their offering to pay their good shepherd is the price of a slave, an injured slave at that. How about humiliating? How about insulting to Zechariah? After all that he's done, after helping them and encouraging them, after years of preaching to them and being faithful to them, his wage for the price of his work for all of these years is a wounded slave. One commentator points out that 30 pieces of silver was the buying price of a slave in Moses' day. It should be noted that a thousand years have taken place between Moses and Zechariah. Inflation would have been a little bit more in a thousand years. So this was even a worse price. The price of a good shepherd was the price of a slave, maybe even lower. It was clearly insulting and showed how the people actually thought about the man of God. And here's the point in this verse. The point is that what God values, man devalues. What God hates, man loves. You see, our value system is flawed from what God values. You know what God values? God values those who are faithful to his word. And those who are faithful to his word, God says, they're worth a lot. But in the eyes of people, the things that are important to God are not important to people. And because of that, our value system is wrong. God says truth is most important and should be highly favored in the book of Proverbs more than silver or gold. And yet man could care less about wisdom. Man could care less about um, true godliness. So here, a good shepherd is shown, but then he is sold for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah is disgusted by the insult. And in verse 13, look what he does with the money. And the Lord said unto me, cast it unto the potter. This goodly price, and that's a sarcastic statement. In other words, that this price, this price of a, of a slave, that I was prized at them, I took the 30 pieces of silver and I cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. I threw them away in the house of the Lord. So in the temple, he throws the money down to the potter. Now, something happens in the New Testament. Matthew picks this up. Turn over to Matthew chapter 27. And Matthew picks this up in the life of Jesus and the story of Judas. Matthew chapter 27, look down in verse 6. And the chief priest took the silver pieces. So after Judas had betrayed him in verse 3, verse 4, he comes back to the high priest and he brings the 30 pieces of silver and he says, I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, what is it to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the silver pieces in the temple and he departed and he went and he hung himself. Notice what the chief priests do. The chief priest took the, sil the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. They knew they couldn't take that money and put it in the offering plate. So instead, they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in it. Wherefore, that field was called the field of blood unto this day. And notice what Matthew says in verse 9. Then was spoken that which was, or then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued for whom 
uh, they of the children of Israel and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord appointed. So what Matthew does here, Matthew is seeing that what Judas has done by selling the worth of Jesus for the price of a slave, the value of our Savior was no more to the people of Israel than a wounded slave. In fact, a murderer was let go before Jesus. They valued an evil murderer over the dear life of our Savior. Imagine the insult. Imagine the humiliation. The Savior of the world who came in meekness and love and compassion and wept over Jerusalem as sheep having no shepherd and yet they hated him and murdered him and hung him on a cross. His closest friend sells him for the pieces of silver and Judas got it all wrong. And friends, we had it all wrong as well. We were no better than Judas. Enemies, rotten, Sinners rejecting the Savior, the Messiah, who died for us. But there's a problem that exists in Matthew surrounding this verse. Not a problem. There's always a sob. The problem is on our end, not the Scripture's end. Notice who Matthew says, said this. Did you notice in verse 9? Who is it? Jeremiah. Jeremiah. What Matthew does, Jeremiah doesn't say this. This is connected to Zechariah. But Jeremiah doesn't mention Zechariah. Jeremiah actually combines two events in the Old Testament and he brings them together. One from Zechariah 11 and the other from Jeremiah 32. Turn over to Jeremiah 32. We've got a minute or two left here. Jeremiah 32, there's an event that happens in Jeremiah. He's told... And he's told to do something, again, in in the prophecy of what God is going to do in Jeremiah 32. He is told to go out in verse 7, and he's told to buy a field that is in Anathoth. And there he goes out in verse 8. This guy asked him, said, buy the field. So he says, okay, I'll buy the field. Verse 10, he says, uh, I'll, I'll inscribe it, I'll seal it, I'll weigh it out. In verse 11, I took the evidence of the purchase, but the seal, everything, all the paperwork, and I bought this field. Look at verse 15. This is the point. He goes out and he buys the potter's field in Anathoth with the money. And then in verse 15, this is what God is doing with Isaiah or with Jeremiah. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. Verse 17, Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out our arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. You show loving kindness unto thousands and recompenses the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great and almighty God, the Lord of hosts, is his name. So what Jeremiah is doing, he goes out and he buys this field and he is told to buy the field and set it there and leave it. Because one day, all the Jewish people, they're going to Babylon, and one day, Jeremiah will prophesy in 70 years, they'll come back to this land, and they'll build houses, and they'll plant vineyards, and they'll live in this land again. So, Jeremiah, this is not all there is. There's more to the story. So, Jeremiah puts a down payment, buys a field, and goes to Egypt and dies. And it was all used as an object lesson to what God is going to do one day by bringing the people of Israel back to Jerusalem in the time of Zechariah. So what is it that Matthew's doing? Here, let me, let me just show this and we'll close. 
Matthew sees this event as a prophecy of still two future events. The rejection of the Messiah ensures that Jerusalem, the temple, and God's people, Israel, is going to be destroyed because they've rejected the Messiah. Smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Does anybody know where that verse comes from in the Bible? Try Zechariah chapter 13. We'll get to that at another time. You see, when the shepherd was smitten, when Judas betrayed, when Israel cried out, crucify him and put him on the cross, the shepherd and the Messiah was rejected. And at the cross, Peter says in the book of Acts, and Stephen says in the book of Acts, you are responsible for him. And because you've rejected the Messiah, God will reject you. And he will drive you out of this land. And he will burn. Jesus said himself, not one stone will be left upon another. All of that happened in 70 AD. Just like Zechariah prophesied. You reject the shepherd, the good shepherd. Then there's going to be suffering and judgment. And for 2,000 years, the Jewish people have suffered for their decision of rejecting Jesus of Nazareth. The second thing that Matthew does is Matthew connects the prophecy to Jeremiah buying the field. I don't have time to go over Jeremiah's passage in detail, but the point of Jeremiah buying the field was that one day God would bring back his people to the land. And you can bank on it and count on it. I believe that Matthew ensures that one day God will return to the promised land, the people of Israel, and he will gather them from all over the world. And Matthew could, I believe, could be connecting Jeremiah's buying of the potter's field to the fact that God is not finished with the Jew. So may I quote from my Bible notes, and I don't know who the person is that wrote it in my Bible notes. I've got a Bible that has the notes on it. If you have a Bible note, uh, I think it's a, it's a great opportunity. But underneath this verse in Matthew, here is what the, the author said. The two prophecies do more than just foretell the events of surrounding Judas's actions. By merging these two texts, Matthew shows that Jerusalem's rejection of the Messiah would result in its own destruction, but that God would one day restore the city in due time. Now, this shows me that this, this guy in this, writing these notes down, he seems to be a dispensationalist. He believes, as I do, that God is not finished with Israel. And thank you for Matthew, to Matthew for combining these two passages and showing us that you and your fellow apostles, he and his fellow apostles, were confident that God would keep his promise with Israel and one day bring them back to the land and restore the nation of Israel. So interesting how Matthew goes back to two passages of Scripture and brings them together in what Judas does for selling Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and speaks of something that God is still going to do He's going to judge them and in a time of intense suffering and persecution, but he will one day bring them back. Now, the last three verses talk about the Antichrist. If you like information about the Antichrist, there's all kinds of study that you can go in. This is one of the only places in the Old Testament that the Antichrist is prophesied um, as, uh, as the bad shepherd and what he will do, and God will bring him as well and destroy him. Father, thank you for the time we have tonight. A lot of studying. A lot, of, a lot of thoughts, very complicated chapter, but interesting how prophecy um, is seen both in 
um, in the past and how it's fulfilled and, and how Matthew would use it and see it. And what a sad fact that, that the shepherd would come and offer himself as a savior and as a sacrifice. Do these miracles all over the land of Israel. Walk on water, heal the sick, feed the, the, the starving, offer living water, and yet they would reject him. And because of that, 2,000 years of suffering that the Jewish people have continued to experience and are still experiencing today. But one day, you will come back and you will regather your people in the land, maybe similar to as you've done in the last 75 years. But eventually, they will look on him in whom they have pierced and they will accept him, that good shepherd. But it won't come... Um, until they first accept an evil shepherd and make the, him their king and sign a peace treaty with him and attempt to be deceived by him thinking that he will be their answer and he is not. Lord, bless us tonight as we go. Thank you for the richness of the scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, God bless you. You are dismissed.